welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Another really good episode we've got today, which is called What Are Animation Leaders Looking For? And today joining us, we've got four guests. We've got Athos, who's a lead animator from Avalanche. Sudar is a lead animator from Rovio. Uh, Michael is a lead animator at Goodbye Kansas. And Johan is a 2D and 3D animator at Rovio as well. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, and Nordic's Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. As always, we have a couple of questions from our guests that we're going to talk through and hopefully answer as well and offer a little bit of advice, obviously, around the topic of what animation leaders are looking for. Um, But before we do that, we're going to kick off with some introductions like we always do. So first of all, Athos, please could you give us your introduction? Hello there, uh, I'm Athos. I've been animating for about 13 or more years. Um, I started me, uh, originally at university studying computer games. Then I went into mocap. I did some facials, some three, uh, some full body, some films, some indie work, some outsource work, until I uh, eventually started just focusing on the core dev teams of computer game industry and that's what I've been doing for like the last eight years um, very solidly um, yeah perfect thank you very much uh, Johan could pl- you please introduce yourself yes hello uh, my name is Johan and I'm a 2d 3d animator I started as a 2d animator uh, almost 20 years ago or maybe it's more than 20 years ago uh, and I've mostly been working with films uh, but as the animation industry in Sweden has grown, also, so has uh, my work for for the uh, game industry evolved as well. Uh, I have my own studio called Cinematic, and currently I am a contractor at Rovio for the last two years. And I was um, character, or was called creative lead at uh, King hmm. at marketing. Uh, studio uh, amazing as long as, long as they had their uh, <laughs> amazing video department it was shut down so i <laughs> departed and did uh, other stuff fair enough fair enough but perfect thank you very much johan uh michael let's come to you hello yeah my name is michael and i'm a stop motion and cg animator mostly cg lately but i started in stop motion and I started as early as the age of four, actually, when I started uh, playing with like uh, my parents' video camera. Um, and then at the age of 14, I know that um, animation is what I wanted to do professionally. So I've worked professionally for about 12 years now, I would say, uh, both in stop motion and CG. And I'm currently working at uh, Goodbye Kansas. Perfect. And, and yeah, yeah, no, no, sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, and also cool. like, yeah, yeah, since uh, I just wanted to mention as well, like uh, since I am self-taught, I've, I've kind of developed like a lot of skills within rigging and lighting and stuff because I never really knew anyone who was into it the way I was. So I kind of had to learn it that way. And, and I think that's benefited me a lot. No, it's amazing. I've got you. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad you got that bit in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Suda, let's come to you. Hey there. Uh, Suda here, working as a lead animator at Rovio. Uh, before joining Rovio, I was working with Zynga Game Network around 500 years. And overall, I'm having 16 plus years of experience, eight plus uh, in mobile and computer games, and eight plus in media, film, TV episodes. And work with uh, international clients like DreamWorks, Nickelodeon, Microsoft, and Polygon Pictures. While working with these clients, I got a chance to work with uh, famous TV series like Penguins of Madagascar, Puss in Boots, and How to Train Your Dragons. And later, when I was working in Zynga, I got a chance to work on amazing games like Farmville 2, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and GOT Slots. And now I'm in Rovio. <laughs> I'm supporting the Angry Birds 2 animations 
and working on a new IP. And uh, my background includes 2D, 3D animations, rigging and skinning. And sometimes I do VFX too. And I do a bit of tech art and modeling props and leading the art team and look over uh, outsourcing teams and mentoring animators. You do That's it all. all you do it all, <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much. And thank you for everyone's introduction. Well, now we've introduced ourselves, uh, let's go into our questions. So the first question is going to come from Athos. So please, could you kick us off then? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I was thinking uh, a great kickoff question would be, uh, what are we looking for when hiring onto our teams? Um, my answer will focus uh, around like sort of the CV and the personality of interviews, but I'm I'm happy to hear any thoughts that come to people's head when you initially hear this question. Perfect. Who wants to kick us off first? Anyone? I, I could mention one thing that uh, it's not as often as people talk about that, but one thing that I find really important is that uh, we get people who are not afraid to kill their babies, so to speak, because there's always, you know, when you're, when you're animating something, and then you're super proud of it. You've always got to be ready to make changes and just scrap entirely what you've done and just start from scratch. Like despite how good it looks, you just got to be able to to accept the notes and the comments and just start from scratch without hesitating, really. Because um, yeah, you see a lot, and especially when it comes to higher end projects, that's more common. Sometimes in like uh, lower end shows you might be able to get away with like the first block that you do and then go into spline straight away. But I found that as we work on bigger and bigger projects, sometimes you do something and then you work on that for ages, but then the client will change their mind and it's just back to the drawing board again. I think that's a good quality. Definitely, I like it. I, I totally agree. Uh, I've been looking, uh, I mean, skills and talent is of course a major, major thing when hiring people. Uh, but I think uh, to get a good balance between men and women is also important. There is a lot of talent out there. So uh, and in, the, in the industry, especially for, uh, for animation, uh, if you don't have, if your hiring process is more like you meet someone or you bring in your best buddies and the studio is started by five guys, you probably will bring in the next person will be another guy and then you end up uh, with 20 guys and no girls at all so uh, when i was at uh, at king uh, we were actively looking to make a, the the department 50 50. since when i started we were three people and we went up to 25 people uh, during three years so i think that is uh, something that we you have to actively uh, looking for. And Jorn, what does that do for like the actual the quality of the work then in the projects? Uh, say again. What what does that do for the the quality of the projects? I think it brings another uh, perspective mm. uh, and and different acting uh, different uh, and uh, a different uh, uh, different atmosphere. And if you're making uh, uh, making marketing for games that is target uh, that is mostly played by women, it, it would be uh, very wrong to have uh, a work group that is only consists of men, for instance. Mm. Then you have, if your target group is uh, middle-aged women in in the U.S., of course you can maybe you can't have middle-aged women in, in the US um, in your work group since you're in Sweden, but at least have covered the gender basis. No, it keeps it relevant. It may, yeah, it makes total sense. Athos, did you want to make a point on that as yeah, well? Yeah, I, I, I really agree. I think it's actually worth like like following up with that and saying, no, that's a really good point um, to have as much balance and diversity especially gender um like i would i would expand further to the point of like it's not even target group so much like say the content you're making if mm. you're if you want to animate a female character and you're not relying on physics for the for the anatomy 
if you're going to ask a guy to animate the the female anatomy, it's going to be uh, it's going to be subconsciously biased to what they like or the things that they focus on when they review not their own body but somebody else's. It's much better to get a female to animate a female character because they understand how the body moves naturally from all aspects and not just the ones that they have like an unconscious bias of when they when they try and review it themselves. Just like a guy would animate a guy better than a female would. So it's really good to have a balance to have to approach the content you're making. Um, and people also say like for acting, you want to have people that come from the culture of the character they're representing. And the same is true for, for animation. You, you want the person who knows that thing to animate that thing. So. I, I would say I agree on that part where it's like, say for me example, I've done a lot of like gymnastics and martial arts and stuff. So I kind of know how, how I move my body in that. So I think, I think that that's that's a good point. That's someone who knows how they would move and stuff. That makes sense. But then in general, I don't think gender matters at all. I think that the most qualified person for the job should have the job, regardless of gender, is my stance on that. Because basically, I think of it like this, say, say like if you're buying an office chair, you don't really care what team is behind it. You want to make sure it's not too expensive, it's comfortable and stuff. You don't really care what the structure was in creating that chair and who designed it or, you know, what kind of people were behind the decisions. That's how I see it. Basically, I because I see the end product and I think, because uh, like what we do now, we work with both, you know, men and women and I don't care who's doing what because I work with very talented people. And say, if I wanted to start doing like my own thing with my friends, then I would only bring in like the people that I know I can work with. And to me, it doesn't matter if they're men or women. Yeah, I completely understand your point as well, Michael. Obviously that's talking more around like ability and skill set, and you want the best person for the job. What would you say to, to Johan's point around um, the different ideas that people bring in though, obviously from a cultural perspective, you know, whether it be gender or culture from, from uh, you know, different backgrounds and things, they will genuinely bring different ideas. So that inclusiveness of, you know, they have to have a certain level of skill set and ability to join the team. Obviously, that's a that's a given, but surely you want lots of different ideas, lots of cultures coming in because it makes the, the, the team much better, surely. Yeah, of course. And I agree with that. But I don't necessarily think that because someone is female, they're going to bring this to the table and because someone's a male they're going to bring this to the table i do believe that people can collaborate you know together and then say maybe someone's yeah i'm just you know brainstorming here but yeah so say someone's really good at one one part of the job they might also be be really good at something completely different and that doesn't really matter you know where they're coming from and then of course like you know people will have different perspectives but then you see that with all people um, so yeah, just, just as a general thought for me, if I'm going to start a company, I wouldn't care about, you know, having this many men and having this many women. It would all be for the end result uh, is what matters to me. And, and of course, that everyone's got a good, you know, it's a good culture. People want mm -hmm. to work there, of course. Yeah, I think that is obviously very important to mention um, that aspect you said around the, the culture side. Suda, what are your thoughts, not only just on this specific uh, area around the gender aspect, but also bringing people into the team, into an animation team when you're, you're looking to bring people in and hire? What, what are your thoughts on that as well? Yeah, so in, in my opinion, it's like um, the skills are important, skill sets, but when I see for a long-term potential, right, and the candidate should be a good team player with very ambitious, enthusiastic, and passionate. All these things we look, but some some candidates will stick to. They say like, I just want to do only 3D animation. Like they don't show any further interest to, to new things. I don't show interest to learn new things. So avoiding that, and they just say like, I don't do 2D animations. So I just want to avoid this type of uh, candidates. And instead of like, they have to be willing to try anything and willing to give credit to others and able to take any feedback. This is very important for animators. And fitting to the work environment or culture is very, very much important nowadays. And finally, ability to produce the results because a lot of people do good animation, but it should be in a very productive way it should be delivered and 
by putting the right skills in the right time is also very important. And um, I was into recruitment um, wing. So I, I have faced these um, issues. Like we bring someone and then all of a sudden, like they just work for a month and they just leave. And and behind before doing this, like when we get hire someone, right? It's like there is a lot of work goes beyond it. And once we get them and all of a sudden they just <laughs> disappear, this puts a lot of uh, pressure. So we, we just make sure the work culture they have to fit into. So we just give a chance to reach to the team where they are going to work. So they also just have a friendly conversation before they just getting hired. Like the entire team will just uh, talk to the candidate. So that's one thing uh, how I feel like it's better to include these things also like before hiring. Yeah, so you're also talking about from not only a pure skill perspective and uh, you know a diversity and inclusion perspective, but also a cultural perspective that they are going to be a good fit on the team. And that's important, obviously, to make sure they're not going to come in and stir the pot or anything and, and make sure that the team, they elevate the team in a sense from a cultural standpoint. Right, because when, when it comes to skills, right, like a lot of uh, times we ask like how many years of experience you have in Maya? Do you have experience in 3ds Max? But I say like, those are just tools. So when you know one thing, then definitely, if even if you don't know about the other tool, it, it's just a matter of time to learn the new thing. Mm -hmm. So for, for me, it's like, it doesn't matter whether it's like which software, it's just, if you are good in animation, you will be good in all principles. So you should know like <laughs> what to hit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on your question, obviously, your question was, what are we looking for when hiring into our teams? When someone submits an application, obviously, as an animator, I see this a lot working in recruitment and submitting applications on behalf of people as well, and speaking to a lot of hiring managers. Um, the, the, especially with artists and designers, the big thing is portfolios and showreels with animators, obviously, you know, rather than CVs, because the CV is yeah. obviously just words, but for hiring managers, they want to see uh, show reels and they want to actually see the work and I think uh, speaking to a lot of hiring managers say that's the first thing that stands out to them and the first thing you look at so from that perspective what's what sort of a good show reel for you what what stands out oh yeah no totally so for me what I obviously uh the first line is going to be the, the recruitment person and I know like flashy show reels or like the final renders is usually what helps get past them and then it will arrive to the lead animators to review that show reel and see what skills we can notice but for me i don't want that many of the flashy final renders because that hides a lot of your direct work um i look for very the things i really appreciate is i want some like raw renders from inside of the applications right some playback so i can see the precise skills that you're using that you've implemented on your rigs also use the four corners of your video to write information like uh, especially if you're showing like a cinematic shot, it's like, what did you animate here? And was it keyframe or was it motion edit, right? Give me information, give me some context. If you also use another corner to say like what projects it's from um, and uh, like what company, then the CV is a good reference point to compare like, ah, while you were working at that place, you did this and this and I can see how that works. And I wanna see like a variety of, of the quality and um, that you output. So I want to see the, yeah, those raw renders as well as the the final shots, how it looks like when it's in game. But I don't just want one point of view for each shot. I want I want a variety. And what I'm usually looking for also depends on skill level. So for juniors or for people entering into the industry, I'm just looking for one spark of talent. Like that that one spark that makes you go, ah, they they understand something very like it's integral to them and they have it in there i'm happy to hire this junior because i know i can i can grow that one thing there i don't need the whole showreel to be good i saw that one thing i need to be happy with but when you get up to a senior of course you want a lot of talent shown you want to you want to see like a range of skills or if they only focus on one thing they're really really good at that thing they focus on um and then when it comes and then that will take them to the interview stage and then the interview stage I the personalities I want to hear is, um, I, I won't say like um, uh, excited or anything because I'm, I'm very aware of, of um, 
um, introvert versus extrovert, and I don't want an extrovert to stand out. So I look for people who love animation. You can be really quiet, but if I can tell that you have an internal passion for animation, for animating, you really into animating, and you're very, um, very open to feedback, as Suda said, like the ability to and everyone here like mentioned like ability to adapt the work you're working on ability to work with the team around you and fit in the culture that's what i'm looking for is that personality do you fit well with us and are you like into the work you're doing do you have a, a passion to follow through with it but then everything changes when you get to lead and director that's when suddenly all of that stuff becomes uh, very flipped on its head the show rule suddenly for me is much less important if i'm say hiring a director above myself when i was at uh, Ubisoft Berlin, we didn't have an animation director and I was the uh, recruiter for animation uh, for the Berlin studio. Um, I did a review and I was asking my team and we like really looked at what would we want if we got a director to come in above us, right? Cheryl suddenly is far less important. They could have work that's five years old on that. All I want to see from their Cheryl is do they understand games? Do they have an understanding of animation techniques? I don't need to see highest quality. I don't need to see better than me because they're not going to be making the animations they're going to be giving us feedback and leading us. So I don't need really high quality stuff. I just need to see experience in the show. The personality is where everything is fundamental. I need to completely trust the director before I hire them. I need to like them as a person. Do I get on with this person? And that personality suddenly becomes really important. Are we happy for this person to, to be an, uh, above us and kind of take control of our team? Do they feel like they will lead us forward where we want to go? So. No, it's a, it's a really good point. And there's so many different parts of information, which I think would be really beneficial for people coming into the industry. Um, just hearing that around, like applying for different positions of what what to do when presenting showreels and things as well. So thank you for that. Does anybody have any uh, other comments on anything that AFOS has just said there? Very well phrased, I want to say. <laughs> no, actually, it was really, really good. I was going to ask a little, maybe a little bonus question off the back of that. How are you seeing the level of animators, this is for all of you, the level of animators, uh, showreels and things that are applying these days and the level of talent in the industry at the minute, it's specifically in animation. Is it good? Is it, you know, a little bit lower than usual? You know, is it quiet? What What is the industry looking like from your guys' perspective? Um, I'm happy to jump to this first. From what I've noticed is um, things have sort of, shifted and leveled out within computer games there's a shift towards um, motion capture and and motion builder and but it, it's and in the past it's like oh cool you know how to use a thing but now it's like everything feels very samey i'd actually i'd love to shift a little bit back towards more keyframing i feel like we've left the pure concept of animation like like arcs and timing and a lot of the important things that only come from keyframing you don't you don't have to understand these things when it's just pure motion capture, especially if you've got a very talented actor who's doing the role. Um, and I feel like there's a there's a large scope for people who start out with motion editing and then continue onwards to miss out some core fundamental things that keyframing helps teach animators. So I do feel in a way we have been losing some things because um, publishers have kind of been leading us towards a very um, like everything's set up, like, oh, we know what works. So if we just kind of lead everyone to the way we like working, that usually makes money and standardize things. And it's like, I would like less standardization. I want a little bit more flavor and colors and variety. And you will notice when something unique gets released on the market, it gets bought up very quickly because we're kind of lacking in a way unique things when we compare to the big AAA titles. So those unique colors are things that people actually really want. And I want more animators with a larger diversity than I've been seen in recent years. Michael, did you want to say something on that as well? Yes, I just want to say that you put it out there very, very well. And also, like, what I wanted to add, you're going to have to help me with the name of this uh, Love, Death and Robots episode, you know, which with the, with the dancing girl in the river, what is that called? Mm. You know which one I'm talking I don't about. Know what right? you mean, but I don't remember the name. It's based off of uh, <laughs> the in Siren song, basically, but a very classical. Yeah, so basically what, what I'm getting at there is that I've heard a lot of people, they were surprised when they found out that it was rotomated, that it wasn't motion capture. And it kind of it relates to what you're saying that nowadays a lot like if you're if you're if you've animated something beautiful and it's and it looks realistic, and then nowadays a lot of people get surprised when they find out that, oh, you actually animated that? That's not motion capture. Whereas like it seems like 
I don't know, like five or 10 years ago, it would be obvious that a skilled animator would be able to animate something realistic. Whereas it's, we kind of lost that a bit, I think, when things become automated and it's like, we have really like fast paced productions. So it's like, yeah, we got to do it in motion capture. And then you're just cleaning up motion capture rather than trusting the animators to, to do something beautiful from scratch. No, really good point. Um, Athos, it's a really good question. I appreciate that for the first question. And hopefully a lot of information, um, you know, will be taken on board by a lot of people listening to this. So appreciate it. Uh, we'll move on to the second question, though, which is going to come from Johan. Um, so, Johan, please, could you give us your question? Yeah, uh, how to track, uh, track the shots, how they are progressing. Are you just counting the frames or... Uh, and going over dailies day by day or how are you working with it i'm asking this because in since i have a, a film background they usually uh usually have dailies and uh, my business partner veronica she developed a tracking sheet uh, where we can see directly if we are on par uh, with the production quite similar to, to shotgun but she didn't know shotgun existed when she wrote it. Uh, but now when I'm working with games, uh, I don't really understand how, <laughs> how things are, are, uh, are um, recorded or uh, listed. <laughs> I, I'm missing the word here. But I think yeah, the, the, the tracking, you're right. It's the, the word tracking. How are they tracked after the fact? Aphos, do, do you want to carry on with that? I, I certainly can do. Um, the standardization, that, that thing I'm not quite so happy with, uh, that we've moved into in the last 10 or so years. Unfortunately, it's not tracked fully. Like history isn't tracked very well, I find. And I wish we had a better history of, of tracking what we did previously because it actually helps you plan future better or next project if you have a really good understanding of what you've done. Um, so yeah, it ends up being like a Jira ticket is made, it's fulfilled, it's ticked, finished, and then it kind of disappears in the ether. and I'm not nearly as fond of that. My personal preference is Excel and I have every animation in there and I track, I want everyone to, how long did it take you to make that? Like have your prediction first. And if, if what you did doesn't match prediction, that's fine. I want to record the, the work, how long it took and then keep a record of it. And then we can look at the feature at the end and be like, oh, if we're gonna make a similar feature, it will take X amount of time. I can mm -hmm. reuse that data. That's my preference. That's how I like to work. I like to track it in Excel and have, everything really well tracked but i don't use it as a micromanage way i just want it to be recorded so i can take the data and use it in the future dailies if it's stand-up i'm not actually nearly as fond of them i don't think stand-ups are very helpful the way they're often run sometimes they are helpful but a lot of the time it's people going up like yeah so i'm working on the tasks that are assigned to me and next i'll be working on the tasks that are assigned to me uh, next person's turn and you just kind of like why am i here for the next 20 minutes doing this if we're all we all know what we're doing I prefer um, feature teams or iteration-based scrums, which is a software development technique that very few companies use, but when they do use it, it's beautiful. It's um, you only like you you show up with only the people that are relevant to you. Like, so you show up with the designer and the coder, even though you're an animator, you're not there of other animators because you're making animation and the designer needs to know, does it match what he wants it to match? And the coder needs to know, will it implement into the engine? And so you only say the things that are relevant to each person's work. Like, oh, I've hit a snag, so I'm going to be laid on this. Or how about if I shift it to an extra 10 frames because this is happening? And so I was like, oh, an extra 10 frames breaks the pacing of the player experience within that feature. Are we able to maybe only add five frames with that work as a compromise? That's a much better conversation than I did this, I'm doing this next. The next person speaks. But... Mm, that's a really good point. Suda, do you want to... Uh... Give us your your sort of insight and how, how you manage tracking it and sort of feedback to other animators as well. So um, here is what I believe. Uh, I believe like instead of uh, counting frames, if it's just frames, sometimes we won't be sure of the quality. And I strongly believe in dailies. Um, it's, it's like because as it gives a clean picture and current status of the shot and gives a chance to apply the constructive feedback like we, we see like what happened yesterday and what's going for tomorrow and and it even it differs from project to project like for mobiles it would be different and if we are working in tv episodes it would be different i'll just give a quick example if we are working for a mobile project you know the character is like 
it has its personality and there is no requirement you to check what happened in the previous scene or what it is just you have a couple of animation loop cycles which you have to do so according to that you just work on that but if it's an episode the episode is like 8 minutes or 20 minutes of episode you don't know the story you you don't see all story it's like all shots what happens earlier but it's very important to the animator to understand the previously from which mood the character came into this scene so at that time it's like even if he is not reading the storyboard or the animatics when it jump just jumps into this uh, dialogue he will get a chance to just understand like what's happening not only for his shot it's just overall it will give a clear picture that's what i see um it, it it all depends on like uh, how the project is like and what quality we are expecting so it's really a tough <laughs> question i think <laughs> and and recently if you see um the the movie the pinacho the stop motion animation movie which is the gulmaro if you see they they worked for around 8 uh, plus years and some shots they took like uh, more than a month for just one shot which is 8 seconds so it it's it all depends on what we are expecting michael what about yourself so uh, i no sorry kiko i i'm then i'm then Okay. Oh, sorry sorry sir I, I didn't realize. Oh that's fine. Go <laughs> on <laughs> Michael. Yeah no it's uh, I I haven't got that much to add on that. I think you both mentioned some very um valuable thing or like topics there. Uh but I do want to say that I think dailies are a good thing in terms of like you get to see different stages of the animation. So say like if, if I'm keyframing something it looks a certain way in Maya and then I get to to talk in real time with you know other departments how it's looking and then they can present problems and then you know basically i get that straight away i can write, write down what to fix etc but then again um something that could be bad when it comes to only having dailies is that you might be fixing something in animation and then it means you're sitting waiting for the next daily session the next day whereas uh, preferably and of course this doesn't work on every project whereas if you could have somewhat like a live communication with other departments throughout the day and and they can give notes and comments on your work and stuff that's i think that's a really good good approach um as far as it works we did that on carnival row i had a really good uh communication with the with the uh the effects soup and i think to to be able to create all of the things that we did and make all the changes i think that was necessary because there were so many changes you know throughout the show um so just having like one daily session it wouldn't really have worked on that type of project not sure if i'm making sense there <laughs> yo one just come back to you obviously you asked the question and and you wanted to gather the thoughts of the others so what are your opinions after hearing that yeah um tying on to michael's uh, i mean you are working very much with uh vfx So I think dailies makes makes more sense uh, in, for that uh, specific pipeline, uh, and I think it's up to the the producer first, but probably also the the supervisors to make to create a, a an atmosphere for the the animator or the lighting artist or the the different um, artists to talk to each other and not just sitting around and waiting to uh, and so they feel uh empowered to go over to to the coder and ask how if i do uh if i add 10 10 frames will it work and you don't uh, so you don't sit and wait for uh, for a meeting to have that conversation uh yeah is, uh, yeah, yeah that, that's kind of what i mean and of course i haven't got as much experience in actual gameplay even though like i create my own games i understand the workflow and stuff but then as like a studio environment i haven't been as much involved in games so i can imagine that's is that what you mean then that you want to be able to have that communication throughout the day with the different departments yeah 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 i mean uh, i think it's important uh, as an animation leader to make sure that people are are feeling feeling okay with uh, asking talking with uh, with each other basically 
That's uh, another really good question. Um, so thank you, uh, thank you, Johan. Uh, we'll move it on to the third one. Uh, Michael, we're going to come back to you because uh, your turn to ask your question. Yeah, so I found this one quite interesting because, like, of course, no project is ever super smooth to work with. So my question is, what are the obstacles that constantly show up during projects and the best way to tackle them? And I mean, like, obstacles that are basically the same uh, over and over. And of course, the question itself uh, doesn't make that much sense in terms of like uh, all of the, yeah, maybe we'll have to edit this. I'm trying to trying to explain what I mean. But yeah, so like um, common obstacles that usually uh, appear on every project, so to speak. Yeah, like the, the biggest challenges, the the things that are always the hardest to sort of tackle when the project is run. So I'm sure there'll be lots of commonalities and it'll be an interesting one to, to dive into. So anyone want to pick up on that first? I'm always happy to jump in. Um, yeah, I find whenever you ask this question in any context, the answer is almost unanimously communication. Communication is the, the biggest shortfall and the thing that can be improved to fix the majority of issues that exist. But for animation, how does that hit, especially in computer games where I come from, um, I would say, this is almost follows on really well from the previous question. It's a lot to do with what team are you in when you communicate updates, when, when things are being shared. If you're sitting in the art team, then there's a lot of people talking about, about models and about textures. And as an, as an animator, it doesn't, it doesn't feel nearly as useful as fit, sitting in a feature team, communicating about this asset needs to go like that, and we need to consider this for the player experience when we do this thing next. And so the, that environment that Johan said, like producers need to make sure you're in the right environment for the communication to actually be optimal and useful that people hear and share with each other. Um, outside of, of being like smarter workflows, smarter groups of people to communicate with each other, um, yeah, being more open to, to having conversations and not waiting for meetings is is something that's especially work from home. A lot of people are like um, I'm like I, I don't want to get into call right now. I've not got like a meeting. Let's set up a meeting or something negative. It's like if we're in the studio, we know we walk up to each other and then conversations start. And I wish it would be nicer if people working from home had the were able to develop that habit of like yeah, I'll just jump in a call. Like I'll just click the huddle button and I'm pretending like I'm sitting next to you while I'm still work half working and and talking to you. Um, so yeah, communication is the big thing. Secondary thing, computer games is tech. But I feel like if you have good communication around tech before it jumps up and becomes a problem, you can you can be prepared for it before it happens. So yeah, different ways of communicating better. I would actually say that one thing that's positive about a lot of people working from home is the fact that you can just jump on a call. I'm not sure what your experience is, but did you say that it feels like not everyone's always willing to do that? Because I feel, I feel the opposite, where it's like you just directly contact somebody and say, are you free for a call? And then you just discuss the thing. And basically, and, and also like if you're more than more than two people, you can actually still work in the background until, you know, you feel I, like it's your turn to, to chip in. I absolutely love that. And that is my preferred. I've, I basically, I get a 50-50 split. I get the 50% of people who are ready to just live their, their home time in a huddle and like pretend like they're in the office next to 50 different people when you can actually only be in the office next to like two people. They're just always ready. I'm one of those people. I'm always happy to just immediately in a call. But when you when you find people who, who would rather wait for meetings, would rather hold things off. Um, and also you can find those people in, in the office that are like, no, I, I, I just want to sit here and, and like focus on what I'm, I'm doing. Um, I was just kind of, yeah, I was just highlighting that maybe 50% of people don't embrace that. And if they did, it would be amazing, right? Like, because you're right, the fact that we can have a call is actually improvement to communication because we're not limited to physical space. So. Well, to be fair on that, Michael, I think you're actually quite rare of a, of a type of person to be like that because I've done multiple podcasts where people are talking about hybrid working and working remotely. And this is always a conversation we have where people like, walking down the corridor and you can ask questions or walking like sitting next to each other or at the water cooler or coffee machine or whatever and people ask questions and get things done and th that is like what Ephesus was saying around people tend to be reluctant to jump into calls so where you said there you know essentially just ring me you know i'm just getting a call and just i'm here to answer a question it's not honestly it's not as common as you think you know people don't it, that isn't that common yeah, okay, okay. Because I feel like we're solving a lot of problems that way and we can solve them pretty quickly. 
like because remember like being in the studio and that kind of comes back to to uh the meetings and dailies and stuff like where you'd sit in a meeting and you wouldn't be able to do any work because you're sitting there around a the table and you're waiting for your turn and you might be sitting there for an hour without, without doing anything whereas now you can actually work as you're talking and then if someone says oh could you check on the leg over here see if it's intersecting or something you can actually just open up the scene as you're in the meeting and you can say oh yeah i can see on this frame it kind of pops a little bit or something and you can fix that and then like before the meetings even even finished you actually have sent out an update on that so yeah i to me i think that solves a lot of problems but then again like what you were saying it does maybe it brings up some new ones as well Oh, I, I fully agree with you. It's as as Andrew said, it's actually not the common thing for people to be happy to do it that way. It is superior in my opinion, in my subjective only opinion. But yeah, it's not the commonality yet. And I, I can't wait until the future when it becomes common. It's funny. Everyone will be like, wow, this is so efficient. Look at this. <laughs> and you can stand there and go, I've been saying this for three years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Suda, what about yourself? What, what's one of your biggest challenges in, in projects in terms of animation? Yeah. So in, in my opinion, it is like if it is a, a existing project or new project, anything it can be. But if you move without like setting clear goals and objectives before starting the project, that may lead to like more obstacles. And and sometimes th this happened like when I'm working with some projects like budget restrictions and sudden changes, like putting less resource also will impact the project. and um, as Eto said, lack of communication and mis mismatched team skills. You, ha you have team, but overall, if you see mismatched team skills, this plays major role. And like communication is the key for any project to run so smoothly. So that always goes to the top priority. But there will there is like team conflict also plays very important role because the entire team should be thriving towards a single goal instead of their own goals and and what i see like last but not the least is uh, impractical deadlines so we know like how much time it takes and all of a sudden you you just say like finish it so it doesn't work like that so if we avoid at least uh, these major key points then in my opinion we can tackle the project in a better way but always there will be challenges and so many obstacles will be always seeing it <laughs> even though if we follow all this <laughs> well michael yeah speaking of that i just thought of that now actually um comparing the stop motion industry compared to the cg industry uh, and i can compare that to a movie that i worked on called chuck steel under the Trampires, which is, of course in stop motion it also comes back to uh, communication as you mentioned that it does um is that usually in stop motion like it's very expensive to redo a shot because like you basically want to have everything planned out beforehand um so that when you go because of course in stop motion you work frame by frame from start to finish and then maybe like you show the director at some point and then like if they're not happy then maybe you do a cutback or you do a complete reshoot of it whereas of course in cg you can and we do you know redo stuff all the time because because we can't basically so people are just expecting us to do that whereas like with clear communication what you actually want from the shots in stop motion it's usually like you want to try to get it right the first time um so yeah that, that's a different thing in, in cg which which can potentially cost a lot of money because you don't really have a clear direction of where to go when you start and then you kind of work towards that direction as you go I, I just wanted to quickly ask you, um, because I'm, I've not been part of films for a long time and I've known on stop motion, what's the best solution? Is it, is it um, storyboarding and, and any sort of type of blockouts? Or, or like, is that, is that still, or is there another way of making sure you don't hit that problem of we made it and now we need to remake it, guys? Yeah, so depending on the, on the budget of stop motion yeah. films, like if it's a high budget stop motion film, you do basically a pop through, which is sometimes like, every 10 frames just to get something and that's also for lighting uh to see like wh where the focus will be and like where the lights will hit and everything and then if they're happy with that uh you do a block and then like say if the movie's shot on once so 24 fps you might do it on like twos or threes and go through it um and then if they're happy with that like that's when they can make comments and stuff and then yeah if, if they're happy with that then they give you the green light to shoot it and then you're trying to sort of mimic that and go you know do the entire shot again but for example, on Chuck Steele, um, 
that was considered a low-budget film, even though I think it looks gorgeous. It looks a lot more expensive than it was. Basically, what the director could tell us there was like, yeah, just give us the loan run. And then, you know, you trust the animator to, to make that run kind of look like, you know, Sylvester Stallone. Or it's like, oh, yeah, I want the monster to do this kind of thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, just, just wing it. Make something cool. And so, of course, there was a lot of trust from the director there. But sometimes, like, we didn't do many blocks there at all. Uh, but I would, and I still do, write down in detail a lot, like, counting the frames almost, like, how long a certain action is going to take. But then, as I was doing that, I could talk to him and say, like, yeah, this is going to be 12 frames there. And then it's kind of like an anticipation for 18 frames uh, before he does that. So I could kind of describe the shots, what I had in mind uh, beforehand. And then, most of the times, he would you know, approve of the shot afterwards. But of course, in CG, it doesn't work the same. Johan, did you want to make a point? Yeah, two things. You have to look out. If you haven't seen Jack Steele, you should do it. It's a, it's a very <laughs> cool film. Uh, but uh, have you, other, your other people, have you got into this uh, thing with uh, stakeholders or clients that from, they are requesting a, a small thing, a small project, a project that is uh, tiny for, uh, for them, so they don't uh, set, a, uh, set away enough of time for them to go, go through everything. So midway through the project, they realize, oh, I actually forgot to tell you that we need to have this and this and this included. And I forgot to send you the the logos or the taglines, or we haven't thought about the finish or things like that. Uh, so, so I suppose that's like, like Suda was saying earlier, setting setting the expectations of the project and ties into what I first was saying around the, the clear communication as well around early on. So you would say that's that's one of the biggest challenges as well, like setting out the, the expectations early in the project of what it is, the time frame, all the communication the way through ways of working and that type of stuff. Yeah, it, it, sometimes it feels like if it is a low, bu things are considered to be low budget, uh, the stakeholder or the client doesn't care as much mm. about the project. And that creates uh, a lot of obstacles along the way. Well, that's interesting. Well, well, we'll just cautious of time. We'll move on to, to Sudar's question, but it does also sort of link into this because we were talking a lot around what are the challenges and, and Sudar, I think you're going to go on to explain a little bit more about how we overcome those challenges. So Sudar, do you want to give us your question? Yeah. So my question is what can be done to overcome the challenges in this industry to boost career growth? In, in perspective, like I, I see many artists, uh, animators stuck, even though they are good in what they are doing. So that I don't see like the like good career growth after like even they have been doing in this industry for 10 years, 12 years, they're, they're stuck at one point. So how we can like overcome the challenges in the industry. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And also like, can we, can we talk a little bit about development as well as to how animators, like you said on the end of that question in terms of boost career growth, what, what does that look like? Like anyone give any advice as to also not over only come challenges, but how do we get better? How do we improve and how do we further our careers? If anyone wants to come in on that. Yeah. So if you see like now the technology changes every year, right? Every year, new technology. So it's, it's very important to, for us to like keep updated ourselves. We, along with it, we should also grow in our career along the way. So, yeah, I think this this follows on amazingly from from all the like the previous the flow of all of these questions because it it comes uh, from my opinion at least in in the gaming sector um, a little bit too much uh, like of that standardization emphasis is put on oh just improve yourself in your own time and it's like. Well, no, it would it not be better if the way we worked helped us improve by working, right? And I think uh, it comes down to, again, like being put in weird teams, like um, a lot of uh, gaming companies, uh, well, not recently, but it's like continued on from the film mentality of animators are often outsourcers and VFX. It's like, oh, they sit over there, we give them a request, they fulfill it, it comes back, we're either happy with it or not happy with it. In the games industry, that doesn't work nearly as well. There is so much more talent that we are able to use with the right team. So being placed underneath art and being placed underneath an art director, that art director, unless they've got a solid background doing animations themselves, what feedback can they give me 
about the quality of the work I've done. Um, that if I'm making gameplay animation, the art director is not the designer. It's the designer that actually says that's good or bad for the gameplay. Does it match the right time length? Does it match the pacing? Does it match the experience? You're supposed to be more excited than this, or you're supposed to be more more panicked than this. That's what the designer focuses on. So when I'm asking myself questions about my animation of is this good? Have I finished with it? Most of my questions are design-based questions. So I feel the best approach to helping animators grow in the industry would be pulling them out of, of the art sector and either having them as a standalone thing, or if you don't want them to be a standalone department, put them with design, right? Especially in games, in the game industry, that makes so much more sense because the iteration and updating and reworking an animation is based on feedback from designers. And they're the people who need to do the sign off. Um, and because we're under art, it also means we limit the number of higher levels. We limit how many companies actually hire are animation directors or animation leads, right? It's like we need those people for personal growth with the experience above us to give us craft feedback, to help us improve our own personal skills and the quality. Because the designer says, is it good or not good for the game? But we also need to hear, it's like, oh, if you were to just improve the pure quality of animation, you need an, an experienced animator above you to give you that feedback or a team all giving each other feedback. Um, and that's that's the changes I'd make to help us boost our career within the games industry for animation is let us be our own thing or be part of design. Let us have leads and directors who focus on being animators and quality. Yeah, it's a really good point. One thing you said at the start of that as well is um, like animators are almost expected to do that development on their own time and stuff as well. And, and am I correct in saying Avalanche are the company that allow you sort of a certain amount of time a week to do sort of development work on your own stuff is that yes we do have craft time and that, a... i also had that in uh, a couple of previous companies where it's like that that emphasis on oh just do it yourself is so strong it's like well we build it in so at least you can use company time to do it yourself but you'll find in all of these companies and all the projects i've ever worked on most people don't use that time they, they get to like oh now i've got two hours to do my own thing but I've literally spent the last four hours really focusing on that feature I was working on. And my brain is in the mood to keep working on that feature so I can get it done in time for the deadline and not feel the pressure because they're not moving that deadline. So I can like, no one feels like, oh, I'm ready to switch over and do my personal thing. I say no one, a lot of people don't, right? It's, mm. it's really hard. They mm. recently shifted to craft days. So instead of two hours a week, it's one day a month. That helped a lot of people, but there's still people that are like, Right, craft day. Oh, well, that means I'd have to set up like a, a thing for myself and get it ready. And I could just, I've got three bugs waiting for me. I could just jump over and do those bugs. Yeah, I'll just do those bugs. And do it. Is, and is that people... not more on, you know, the opportunities there? So obviously on Sudar's question of how can you boost your own, is that not the responsibility of the person, you know, take that opportunity to take that bit of time, step away from your day to day and, and further your career? Do you think the people that take that opportunity will elevate themselves and get further ahead of the people I that don't? Yes, they are. They are definitely helping themselves by using the time. It is positive and is the right choice to make. But some people just their energy doesn't function that way or like their mindset and the, or the pressure or stress and a lot of stress comes from work. So I personally, as, as a manager, I feel like it's, it's more so the company's responsibility to enable people to grow, to enable people to have a work environment where they don't make that, that mental excuse to not use their, their craft time. I don't feel comfortable using my craft time because I've got so much work to do. That shouldn't be a thing people feel. And that's not on the person, that is on the company. So yes, it is important to use the time that's given to you if you're given time. And if you're not feeling you're given time, that's on the companies to make a better environment, to give you a leader or manager who can come and go, hey, how come you're not using the time? All right, let's work together. No, no, come sit with me. Let's start something up. I'll do something, you'll do something. I'll be there right next to you. And I'll give you feedback why you work on it. That's mm -hmm. actually what I've been using my craft time for. I've not been making my own animation, not been working on my own personal skills. I've been mentoring other people. I've been teaching other people. I feel more comfortable helping someone else in my craft time than I do just doing my own thing. Um, so at least I'm doing something good with my time, but I also feel like I'm making up for, there could be more of the company or the structure or something is happening that we've been given that more yeah. personal growth anyway. So. I suppose it's interesting because it will obviously 
you, you improve the skill set of the person in their development, improves the level skill set of the team and then the game and then the company. So it obviously it goes around full circle. If you spend the time and invest it on someone, then it comes back. Um, Michael, I'm interested to hear your perspective on this because you mentioned before you do a lot of your own personal projects obviously when you work from home you get a lot more time to do that and you said you you were self-taught at the start as well so you started from a young age it got to where you are now so interested to hear about your development and your sort of career growth yeah i was just gonna say that sounds fantastic i, I missed how how many hours that was uh um, can you repeat that um it's it uh avalanche it's five percent so it's two two hours a week or one day a month I see. Well, I mean, to me, that sounds fantastic. And of course, like, uh, like I said before, like I have a girlfriend, but I don't live with her. So I do have a lot of, and I don't, ha I don't have kids, which means I can focus on my own projects. But then again, what you hear from a lot of people is that they don't have the time. So I think that seems like a great approach. And, uh, you know, it, it's sad to hear that you say that people don't use the time for it, but I do think it, it does sound like a great idea. And I think it would actually you know, help people improve themselves as well. How, how, what have you done for yourself to, to boost your career? Like, how have you got to where you are today? Well, I mean, I guess it's for me because, I mean, my profession is also my hobby. Like, as soon as I turn off, you know, the, the work computer, I open up my, uh, my own machine at home and I work on my own project because I have that kind of you know, it's it's still like after doing it for so many years, I still feel like I'm I'm learning all the time, and I'm learning like I've recently just dove into learning Unreal Engine because I make my own VR games and stuff because I love VR, and it's it's always like it starts with, I mean, ages ago uh, when I I did 3D stop motion stuff, so I got my own like 3D stepper rig, so like it shoots the left exposure and then the right exposure, so you get like you know 3D image from there, and then from there it took on you know, how, how to make a 360 3D video. But then of course, like when you're doing that, it means that you can't move your head and like see things from, you know, different perspectives. So that meant that, okay, so I got to learn a game engine to be able to, to, to do that. So it's always like, you know, this desire to just keep on learning. And mm. I suppose like, I feel lucky that I do have that and I never get bored of it. There's always something new to learn. Uh, but then of course I understand people's situations where they can't really, for that time because you know they have families and they have you know other things in their lives as well um and like i said before for me that really helped with the uh, work from home because before that i would commute three hours a day um in total from work and i didn't really have you know any free time at all so you know i'd have to sacrifice sleep in order to work on my own projects whereas as soon as i could work from home i have all of this extra time mm. so yeah if say if i didn't have the time and i worked for like a studio like avalanche i would appreciate that a lot and uh, I think Athos would really appreciate you in an interview as well because clearly you were saying earlier about seeing the passion and the drive for, for the craft so I think that shines through with you Michael which is great um, so it's always good to be it's that saying isn't it if you love what you do you'll never work a day in your life um, yeah. Johan what about yourself what's what's you know where have you, how have you managed to get to where you are today in your sort of career growth I've seen my, my career a little bit like like a game like you have the different projects, they are the, the regular obstacles, and then you come to a special project, which is like a boss, the boss at the end of the, the game that you can really level up. Uh, that's how I got into 3D in the first place. I was sitting doing a, an After Effects 2D, uh, 2D job, and this I was at Film Technica at the time, and they were also working on a car commercial. Uh, they were so behind the time schedule. And uh, I sim simply asked, uh, can, I, can I jump in on this? And they asked, can, can you do three? Well, I haven't, I haven't tried it before, but can can be that hard. Since the, the um, 3D generalists were sitting there, I could ask them questions soon. Like, where to move, where to, uh, to set keys. And I spent uh, the weekend with them. They were working throughout the weekend. And on Monday, I showed them a walk cycle. I'm like, okay, you can animate in this, uh, in this program. <laughs> Let's start. And this was mm -hmm. a, a week left of production until the, 
the, the film was being aired. It's not a, it was not a soft deadline, it was like super, super hard. And that was definitely uh, like a boss level. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to go through them type of experiences and, and that level to level up to the next thing as well. So it's yeah. obviously taking that opportunity there's a lot some people might go no i don't want to do that you know because i can't do it or whatever but you not being afraid to fail i suppose is another aspect of that and just jump in and, and have the opportunity to, to to be there and do it definitely and and to understand when that opportunity uh, appears i mean this, yeah this particular example required a, a lot of long hours but it can be it doesn't have to be because yeah. I imagine in that that example, there was no requirement for you to say, "Can I jump in and have a go at this?" You know, that's probably long hours and and maybe a bit of stress in there that you didn't have to do, but you've voluntarily chosen to take on because it's going to elevate your career. It's going to be an experience yeah. and a learning experience for you. So that is obviously a big bit of advice I think for people is to take those opportunities and and recognize them when they are there. Um, so hopefully a lot of people get a little bit of information out of this conversation. So Suda, thank you very much for that question because uh, it's a really, really good question to ask. And it's really interesting to hear from very four very experienced people as to how they've got to, to where you all are today. Um, but that sort of takes us to the end of the end of the podcast. That's everyone's question. So I really appreciate it. Some fantastic insights, some really good answers um, and some, I hope a lot of people will take a lot of things away from this. So really appreciate your time, guys. So I'll take the opportunity to, to wrap it up and say thank you to Michael Sudar, Athos and uh, Johan for joining us today and we'll see you on the next episode. See you soon.